Welcome, everyone, to another installment of the BC Counselor's Legal Brief, the legal podcast that provides easy-to-understand information about estate and business planning to help you, your family, and your business. And now, the jovial gents of jurisprudence, Mike Betts and Spencer Chaffin. Welcome back, everybody, to another installment of the BC Counselor's Legal Brief. I am obviously joined here by Pierre... He says hi, but the guy I'm staring at, the glamorous Mr. Michael Betts. Thank you for that stellar introduction, Spencer. You're very welcome. Mike, most people probably don't know this about you, but when you started your career, you were a litigator. I did. I litigated. Yeah, you were in the courtroom. People feared you. I was a trial attorney. Yeah. Everybody was like, Oh, man, I don't want to be on the other side of Mr. Michael Betts. That's exactly right. And that was the right way to be thinking when you saw me walk into the courtroom. Yeah. And so because people were so fearful, you didn't think it was fair to them. So that's why you came to become a transactional attorney. It's like, you know what? I've had my day in court. I have smeared these other attorneys. It's time to let someone else have another chance. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. I smeared a lot of opponents. I faced a lot of worthy adversaries. We battled mano y mano, and I would prevail. Because have you ever you're seen awesome. the movie Devil's Advocate? I don't think so. So Devil's Advocate is a movie with Al Pacino. Are you looking it up I'm right now? I'm looking it up. I need to watch this. I have not seen it. I think I have it in my to watch on whatever. Just, streaming database. Just so you know how much of a boss Keanu Reeves is, Keanu Reeves on this movie took like a big old pay cut so that they could get, although Keanu Reeves was incredible in it, Al Pacino just as the devil really did a hell of a job. But the reason why I bring that up is Keanu Reeves could not lose. He just could not lose. And he could not lose because of essentially influence from the devil. And I don't want to ruin it for you, but (laughs) I was just like that, except it wasn't because the devil was helping me just because I was so damn good. That's why I have you on my team. Exactly. Because I don't want to face you. Nobody wants to face me. Nobody wants to look at my face. Actually, so when I was a senior in college and a runner for this firm in Charleston, South Carolina, there was this one office where there was one attorney and it was like a 40 attorney law firm. So there's quite a few attorneys, but this one office had stuff in it, but the attorney was barely ever there. So I asked them, I was like, who is this and where are they? They're like, well, he usually doesn't come in a lot. They hired him just so they didn't have to go against him. (laughs) He was that good. And so they had him on their team. So, you know, and I was like, wow. Well, it's kind of like, you know, athletes. If you can get someone that you don't want to have to go against, you can put them on your team. Why not? Yeah. So here's why I bring up your illustrious past as a litigator. Yeah. I say we talk about some fun or funny and interesting litigation cases. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I certainly have the expertise to provide insightful analysis comments on a lot of these cases. Yeah. So you're going to be kind of like, oh, what's her name that's on HLN that was like that attorney or judge for just a little bit that just gives her legal opinion on everything. 
are you talking about Nancy Grace? Nancy, Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace. And she Grace. was, I'll never forget the first time I experienced her was with the Casey Anthony case in Florida. I feel like that was one of the first social media publicized cases. Obviously, I think the first big social media case was OJ Simpson, because that was like all over the TVs, but no one could, you know, get on social media and be like, you know, I'm going to give my opinion. I feel like this Casey Anthony case was the first social media, like interactive case. And Nancy Grace was just, oh, she's going down, like, you know, given the what for and why not. And then it just kind of cracked me up that she didn't get convicted. And this highly touted attorney news anchor was completely wrong. Yeah. I just found it comical. You know why she was wrong? Because she's not Mike Betts. <laughs> I won't be wrong. Spencer, let's begin this. Oh, by the way, I was asked to retire from litigation. I heard that because you were so good. Because I was so good. It's important. It is important. That everybody understand that I am not able to litigate anymore because I was so darn good. So let's start with a fun, unique one. Okay. So there's a case in Missouri of a lady suing Geico. She's suing Geico because Geico's the insurance company for this gentleman and his auto insurance. With this, you'd think she's suing for property damages, you know, wrecks, stuff like that, because the court has granted her $5.2 million. I would think like, he smashed she, into her or something. She must be driving a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Nay. This lady and her attorney, because there's always an attorney behind this, is suing Geico because she obtained an STD from the gentleman she was having sex with while in his car. And the claim is he knew that he had this STD and he gave it to her without forewarning her in regards to that. And so she has decided to sue Geico. Here's kind of the even funnier part is she just wanted a million dollars. And Geico probably laughed at her and said, no, this is not related to, it wasn't caused by the car. It was caused by the individual. Well, they said no. So they went to arbitration. The arbitrator said, fine, $5.2 million. She got $5.2 <laughs> million. And so it was held up in both those initial, and then it went to the appellate court and it got upheld. Let this be a lesson to all. Okay. So we were obviously joking. Litigation was awful. I wasn't tough enough to do it to all of those litigators out there. Congrats on <laughs> just living in the most miserable life <laughs> for many, many, many years. But now, you know, I did have, and I'm very fortunate to have had some very serious commercial litigation experience, big, big cases, and a lot of cases in federal court, which is a different world. But I've also had just the real, like, whatever the opposite of like privileges, like just the torture of doing many arbitrations. I've done a lot of commercial arbitrations. And I'll sit when I'm negotiating a contract with somebody's attorney. And a lot of these transactions attorneys, they have no idea what litigation or even arbitration is. Like they understand arbitration literally from a book. And so I read these contracts with arbitration provisions and, and you hear all this nonsense. It's even spouted bullcrap in the even laws that say 
you know, we're going to honor if a party agrees to arbitration, you got to arbitrate it. There's a federal law in that regard. Every state has a state law in that regard. And so that's really how people force arbitration. It's like, no, we like it. And they suggest that arbitration is like cheaper, better, whatever. It's the superior form of alternative dispute resolution. The reality is arbitration is as complicated, maybe even more so, but like its own procedures and nonsense. Maybe you don't get as much even of a, of, a, of a fair shake to understand the facts. And then your arbitrator can absolutely come in. Geico, you deserve this. With a five million? Five point two million dollar. After she asked for God, just one. <laughs> that is absolutely nuts. Because in reality, when you look at a case like this, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. They weren't operating the vehicle. It wasn't done because of the vehicle. It was done because of human interaction. But I love the attorney that thought outside the box and goes, wait, you were inside the vehicle. Owner is insured for medical expense. Like, you know, the typical things under that. And so what state was this in? So this happened in Missouri. So I don't know Missouri. I'm curious as to the theory, how she named Geico as an actual defendant. Geico was the defendant? Yes. Is what it was? I believe so. Yes. Okay. 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 That's a crazy case, but that is brilliant. Like to that attorney, congrats. That was brilliant. I wonder how that conversation went on, like how many attorneys this lady had to go through to find one to take it. Yeah. Well, was it an auto policy or was it a home? It's an auto policy with an umbrella policy. Oh, gotcha. So I think that's, you know, and obviously I'm just going off Oh, yeah, of yeah, what, yeah, 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 yeah. But hence probably the $5.2 million Patrician is probably like, oh, he's got an umbrella. We can let that cover too. What was the STD, did they say? It was HPV. Is what HPV. <laughs> God. Well, wait, hold on. What is HPV? Those are the worst. Human papilloma virus. That's dangerous, especially for women. That's very, very, very dangerous. So, it can lead to cancer. Okay. But let's say it had been herpes, Spencer. Do you think it would have been a $5 million verdict? If you got the same people, yes. Absolutely. You think so? I think so. For you the fact so? of... He's an arbitrator. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when we used to like see the Valtrex commercials on, on TV, TV all the yeah. time? Like what happened to the Valtrex commercials? Probably no one wanted to be the <laughs> actors for those commercials anymore because they're like, you look familiar. Have I met you before? Oh, you're the commercial star for the Valtrex commercial. So let's talk about some other crazier cases. Yes. So here's a funny one for everyone to laugh at. So back in 2012, or actually the events took place in 2009. This lawsuit took place in 2012. Jesse Dimmick, who happened to be a fugitive facing a murder charge, kidnapped a Kansas couple in September of 2009. And then during all of that, he ended up falling asleep and the Kansas couple escaped. They end up suing him for $75,000 in damages, which is I think kind of comical in and of itself, but that's not the funny part. Mr. Dimmick decided to countersue for breach of contract. And the contract that he alleged was a verbal contract between the people he kidnapped that they had agreed to hide him from the police. What? <laughs> I just couldn't imagine be like, hey, I'm going to sue you because the police found me no. because you're a snitch. I wonder, was he represented by counsel is the question. God, because 
That sounds frivolous. What was the outcome? It was dismissed, obviously, and rightfully so. But like, to go, yeah, I think you got a claim here against this couple. They snitched on you. Like, (laughs) God, that is crazy. Yeah, that's laughable. That is so laughable to me. That is a good one, though. That's a good one. Hey, we're going to take a quick commercial break so that way you can hear from our sponsors, but we'll be right back with more legal info to help you, your family, and your business right here on the BC Counselor's Legal Brief. This episode of the BC Counselor's Legal Brief is brought to you by Alfredo Robledo Certified Public Accountant, PC. Alfredo has been licensed as a certified public accountant since 1984 and is located in Grapevine, Texas. Alfredo can help with many different tax matters, ranging from filing individual and business tax returns, trust and estate filings, as well as bookkeeping services for your business. You can contact Alfredo at 817-421-0720 or find him at grapevinecpa.com. and I'm almost a teenager. I have a real problem. My daddy and my grandfather love pie. For my daddy, it's apple. For my poppy, it's anything lemon. But they won't bring me any pie. I don't think that's fair. They always go to Judy Pie on Main Street in Grapevine, where Miss Judy and her bakers make 20 different kinds of pies and cinnamon rolls on the weekend. But I don't get any. They tell me I can have pie when I'm a teenager, like pie is only for grown-ups or something. Can someone please call my daddy and my poppy and tell them I need pie? In the meantime, you can go to JudyPie.com, or if you're in Grapevine, Texas, visit Judy Pie on Main Street. And if my daddy or my poppy are there, tell them that Kaya wants a piece of pie. We're back, and you're listening to the BC Counselor's Legal Brief, the podcast providing legal info to help you, your family, and your business. And here's one kind of related to copyright. So things we've talked about a lot of times. So a lot of copyright, the big cases we hear are music copyrights and things of that nature. So for our, what we'll say, more seasoned listeners, the probably familiar with the Chiffons and George Harrison. George Harrison being part of the Beatles. The Chiffons were a quartet group that they had a song back in 1963 called He's So Fine. Well, fast forward to 1971, George Harrison comes out with his song My Sweet Lord, which charted number one for four weeks in a row. Well, the Chiffons, the company that owned their catalog, heard this, My Sweet Lord, and they're like, that sounds very, very familiar to He's So Fine. Now, if you go listen to the two songs, they have different tones, as I'll say. But if you actually listen close, actually, you don't even have to listen close. You can clearly hear George Harrison use their music, like use their melody. So they sued him. Well, the company that owns the George Harrison's catalog was like, we should probably try and just settle. So they offered to buy the Chiffon's catalog because they were like, this is going to be way cheaper than litigating this, which I think was probably the right decision, though it didn't happen. The court ruled in favor of the Chiffons, awarding them $1.6 million for just a part of a melody. 
back in 76, as I think is when things kind of settled out or the trial court and all of that and the verdict and everything, what it really came down to. And so this is the key to take away people is don't plagiarize, even from the slightest thing. If it sounds so similar, the likelihood of you losing is very, very high because the judge of the U.S. District Court in Manhattan said, did Harrison deliberately use the music of He's So Fine? I don't believe he did so deliberately. Nevertheless, you never want to see a nevertheless if you're on the losing side. It is clear that My Sweet Lord is the very same song as He's So Fine with different words, and Harrison had access to He's So Fine. So that's kind of one of those, they look at a bunch of factors of, did you have access to the music beforehand? Was it likely that you heard it and used it and things of that nature? And so they awarded the chiffons $1.6 million. There's a lot. It's surprising when you look into this. There's a lot of cases that are similar to this because I think music is kind of like reused. And I'm not talking about sampling or anything like that. But How many times can you write a a love song in so many different ways? I feel like I'm so glad I'm not in that industry because there is going to be a repetitiveness intentionally and on accident. Yeah. it's ripe for the so we were talking about Dua Lipa had one with her song Levitate or Levitated or whatever. Levitating, that, yeah. Levitating. So that song, I think you'd mentioned to me, it's currently in litigation or something yeah. was maybe done in May. But there's a really interesting world in copyright and music because you can have different types of copyright. You can copyright the lyrics. You can copyright the sheet music. You can copyright the recording itself. So a recording, like a master, right, as a work is its own separate thing. And so then if you do your own cover, so let's say you do a cover, Spencer, that recording of that cover is your property. It's yours. But in a cover, conceptually, you're using the same sheet music. You're using the same lyrics, right, that you would be theoretically infringing if you did it. So there's different concepts and different protections. And there's some clever things that some of these people had done, like Taylor Swift, I believe, re-recorded. Because typically, and I can be wrong on this, but I feel like some of these artists, a lot of the artists will maintain the rights to the underlying like music, let's say, right? So like, what's a Taylor Swift song? Shake It Off? So let's say she writes Shake It Off, right? And she might own the song Shake It Off, but like the master recording, Shake It Off, however it goes, like that thing that we all have heard, that is maybe she didn't keep her masters, right? This is a thing that a lot of people like fight for, try to go back and buy. Maybe she didn't own that, right? Those rights. But I feel like she like went and re-recorded all of her stuff because she's got the following mm-hmm. and then in a way kind of gamed back the system. Again, not to say artists are right or labels or whatever are right, like whatever, but she got back the power doing of her something own like stuff. That. Yeah. I'm going to read this article because it's kind of funny. Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR, 
John Fogarty was the lead singer for that band. Well, the owner of the catalog, Fantasy Records, ended up suing John Fogarty after they split for a 1985 song that he did. The songs in dispute are Run Through the Jungle from 1970 with CCR and The Old Man Down the Road, 1985, which is John Fogarty by himself. It says, John Fogarty was being sued for sounding too much like John Fogarty is one of the most more bizarre copyright lawsuits in music history. In 1970, CCR released an anti-Vietnam War song, Run Through the Jungle, written by Fogarty, with clear influence from Bo Diddley's Bring It to Jerome. Over a decade later, Fogarty's third solo album, so he's already split, 1985 Centerfield, opened with a song called The Old Man Down the Road. And the songwriter suddenly found himself with a lawsuit from his old label. So, Fantasy Records, which owned the copyright for Run Through the Jungle, sued Fogarty for copyright infringement. So it's kind of like himself being sued by himself, believing that Fogarty had merely changed the lyrics to the 1970 song. Here's the funny part. In the witness stand, Fogarty pulled out his guitar and played both songs, illustrating that they were entirely different works that fit his signature swamp rock style. And so the Ninth Circuit for the Court of Central District of California ruled in Fogarty's favor. But though Fogarty won, he, why they always got to bash attorneys, racked up $1.09 million in illegal fees while defending himself. So it's just kind of comical of, you sound too much like yourself. Stop that. Like, <laughs> we're going to sue you for making music in your own voice. Like, right. I'm sorry, we don't have auto-tune in 1985 to change my voice. I find stuff like that comical, but hey, there's rules to be followed and lawsuits to be filed. Yeah. Because attorneys got to eat too, man. We got to provide for our families. Yeah, dude. And you know what? Again, I'm still actively pursuing that OnlyFans account. <laughs> still, nobody wants to look at my feet or any other aspect of me. And so until I can get that OnlyFans, I got to. Well, I got to as an attorney. Mike, I would work. subscribe, but I work with you, so I get to see you anyways that's for true. free. That's true. By the way, I just want to confirm for everyone, because while Spencer was talking about that, I was doing a little bit of research, and turns out I was right, Spencer, with Taylor Swift. She did own the compositions, but she didn't own the masters, as is typical in the industry. And her label was preventing her from doing things with the original recordings. So that's why she has been re-recording this whole there time. And then she's got the clout that people will ignore the old recordings. And this is the new stuff that they'll do. But there's technically two masters, let's say, out there of one of her albums, as an example. And she owns one. They own they, being her old label, owns the other. But because she owns the composition itself, she can re-record it as much as she wants, as little as she wants. But that's why if you want to do something silly, like, so Spencer and I, we've talked about this in the past. We have a marijuana consulting company. I had put together a marijuana industry consulting company for legal compliance. For people and, wanting to get into the yeah, business, we yeah. consult for them. Spencer and I are not in marijuana or any of that. I just wanted to clarify that in case people were curious, Spencer. That's exactly right. But we were trying to do a little bit of our own marketing 
And I don't know, Spencer, did you ever see the commercial that Bianca and I... Yes, I did see you it. You did see the commercial. I did see okay. it. <laughs> well, at the end of the commercial, at the end of the commercial, the video that we were putting together, at the end of it, I had taken... A lot of people will know it from Step Brothers, but it's a famous kind of opera song by... Andrea Bocelli. <laughs> what is it? Is it Bonicelli? Bocelli. Bonicelli with an end. Bocelli. Andrea Bocelli. Uh, we get the name. You might want to. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. It's like the song that Will. Will Ferrell. Ferrell. Thank is you. Singing. Well, anyway, it's that song. Well, I found obviously a version of it that was an original, like from the master work, basically, which means that. I would have to work with it. Well, so I found a different version that was a recreation, but on the sound itself, it was freeware. And so I could theoretically use that, but it was playing the composition that is owned by Mr. Bocelli. Well, I found out who his publisher was, the person that managed the stuff. So what we did is we took that version and then I made it our own with our own lyrics and I submitted it to them. And I was like, we'd like to use this in our little commercial. And you know what they told me? F off. They basically <laughs> said, we will not allow you to do that. And I was like, but you let them boats and hose. And I literally wrote that back to him. I was like, well, this is just a small little thing. And there was nothing inappropriate. Right, it was just but- like silly like lyrics like, you need to like work with our purchasing group. It was clean. There was nothing bad about it. Other than, I guess, indirectly in a way, because we were helping maybe people in illegal marijuana. They never said that, though. That would be the only particular way. But I never mentioned marijuana in any of this stuff. Even in the commercial, our whole point is, like, just if we all work together, we can save money on stuff. So we weren't talking about marijuana. We were talking about, like, a bag of a Mylar food bag. It was, like, completely non-marijuana. So I that's why I believe to this day they watched that whole thing and thought that commercial will negatively impact our goodwill and our music. But again, I responded, you let them say boats and hose. Well, I'm going to go with they probably paid a pretty penny. I asked to pay them though. I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, I'd like a license to do it. Probably 10 people will see this. But I'm happy to pay you a license. What is it? They didn't even give me a license. They said, nah, nah, fam. We're good. That's basically what it was. I was like, Uh, So anyway, anyway, that's really actually where I learned a lot about the uniqueness of the recording industry. Yeah, but that just proves to you how strong the power is to license stuff. You can either say yes or leave us the hell alone. Yeah. And if I had gone and done it anyway, And if they found out, they could one, stop me, and then they could figure out a way to get compensated for that because that's what happens. And it would be a willful violation, which means they get to multiply their damages. So it's kind of a way to like say, don't intentionally or willfully infringe. Right. Because if you do, it's going to be painful. So yeah, intellectual property, it's a fascinating area. Again, Now I'm not an old man. The last podcast I am. Now I'm normal, Mike. Intellectual property in today's world of content creation, like we've got an entire economy of creators and this economy of creators 
they are businesses and they need to be aware of the power of their intellectual property yeah. that they're creating. That's trademark, that's copyright, that's ways of thinking about leveraging it that a lot of people don't think about. Even NFTs, and right. I think we've even mentioned this, NFTs are really nothing more than intellectual property. Right. That's what it is, an intangible that a lot of people, and this is kind of scary, they're doing a lot of these like digital contracts that execute and work a certain way. I wonder who is like creating or programming these contracts? And do they really even know the intricacies of it? Like it's tech guys who are brilliant minds, but they don't, I think, appreciate or understand. The substance. As an attorney that actually does practice in the world of intellectual property, not litigation, but helping people license, license and yeah. yeah, you find ways to capitalize on their brands and their intellectual property. Like even I, in a subset, let's say music, it's its own little industry with its own crazy rules. That's why the NFTs are very much fascinating to me. Not for the reasons most people are fascinated, but I'm interested in understanding how intellectual property law will intersect with that. That actually might be a cool topic for a podcast. We can talk a little bit about what the heck even an NFT is. Done a lot of research on what NFTs are. I'll let you educate and me I don't, on that. I don't <laughs> quite understand, to be honest with you. I don't think anybody understands exactly what an NFT is. It's fascinating, though. It's a really fascinating yeah. area of the law in technology. Oh, by the way, Spencer, I've never, ever mentioned this, but I'm an expert in this area because I'm published on the University of Oklahoma Journal of Law and Technology. It's a journal where law and technology merge. And what did you write on? Antitrust. Antitrust. You guys need to read it and then you can make fun of me. I read it the other day. Every once in a while, like I'll like just like... Reminisce like, of your golden what days. I, what was I thinking? <laughs> and then I read it. Have you ever read stuff that you wrote uh-huh. a while ago? And you're like, how did I get away with that? Yeah, it's different today than I was back then. Yeah. God, it was embarrassing. But anyway, I thought I'd point that out. So. so here's a takeaway from this episode. Is there one? There is one. You can file for some weird stuff in court and don't infringe on someone's copyright. No, that is. Those are the two takeaways. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to add one. Don't do arbitration. That's really dumb. Unless you're a car dealer. If you're a car dealer and you're listening to this, make sure you get everybody to sign those arbitration provisions. (laughs) You're not going to get a fair shake in court. Or at least waive jury trials. Waive. Like those contract clauses are really good contract clauses too. But arbitration is good. It can be private. You're an auto dealer. Like you're good. But otherwise don't do arbitration. Or else you'll get a five point. $2 $2 million verdict against you. That's crazy. So yeah, good takeaways. And, uh, with that, Spencer, are you finished? I am done for this episode. Me too. Thank you. See y'all next time. And that brings us to the end of another show. For more information on today's topic or previous show topics, please visit our website at www.bccounselorsatlaw.com. While there, feel free to let us know what future show topics you'd like for us to cover. On behalf of Spencer, this is Mike, and we thank you for listening. And remember, it's always our goal to provide easy-to-understand legal info to help you, your family, and your business here on the BC Counselor's Legal Brief.